of you here this morning. I guess it's a special day. Jeff said about a week ago, we're in the days of awe, and that we are, and I guess you'll see an awesome sight tonight, somewhere between 10 and 11, it'll be clear, and you'll see the final blood supermoon, and I believe it will be an awesome sight, we should expect awesome things, and we certainly will be talking about that more next week. Well, uh, you know, being human, and most of us probably recognize that we are human, uh, we tend to say and do stupid things, and if you're a lawyer or a trial lawyer, you, you kind of tend to ask dumb questions. And the problem of being a trial lawyer is that everything that you say is actually recorded. So here are some of the dumbest questions lawyers have asked throughout the courts in America. The, this first lawyer is a lawyer questioning a doctor. Question, doctor, how many autopsies have you performed on dead people? <laughs> Answer, all my autopsies are performed on dead people. Question, doctor, before you performed the autopsy, did you check for a pulse? Answer, no. Did you check for blood pressure? Answer, no. Did you check for breathing? Answer, no. So then is it possible that the patient was alive when you began the autopsy? The answer, again, was no. And the lawyer asked, well, how can you be so sure, doctor? Answer, because his brain was sitting on my desk in a jar. Here are several one-liners you might appreciate. Lawyer to a witness. Question. You say the stairs went down to the basement. Answer. Yes. Question. And these stairs, did they also go up? (laughs) Hey, I can't write this stuff, all right? Uh, These these are true. Here's another lawyer. Question in a doctor. Now, doctor, isn't it true that when a person dies in his sleep, he doesn't know about it until the next morning? Hard to make this up. All right. Another lawyer to a witness. How far apart were the vehicles at the time of the collision? You might need to think about that one. And finally, a lawyer asks a witness this. Were you present when your picture was taken? Now, my my goal here this morning is not to pick on lawyers. Actually, my sister is a lawyer. My point is, is it's easy for us to do dumb things. I want you to know, though, this morning, I believe the dumbest thing that a person can do in all seriousness is not take Jesus Christ seriously. That is the dumbest and stupidest thing anybody can do. You can do a lot of dumb things, but the dumbest thing we can all do is not take Jesus Christ seriously. So this morning, as we continue our study in the book of Ephesians, we are going to see that Jesus is speaking through the Apostle Paul, and he's going to be saying some very, very important things to us. So I've entitled the message this morning, Introductions Do Matter, uh, and it's really part two. Father, I thank you for each and every single person here. And I pray now, as we move towards communion this morning, that this will be a powerful time for every single person here. You brought them here. And I'm really believing, Lord, that you want to do something in every single person's heart here, including my own. I thank you for the worship and what has transpired up to this point. I ask that you would fill me from the soles of my feet to the crown of my head, that I truly would speak your words in a powerful way. And I just thank you for what you're going to do now in these next several minutes and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Vision this morning, is it clear? Or is it blurry? 
I believe the Apostle Paul is going to give us all clarity this morning as we continue to look at the introduction in the book of Ephesians. And then, like I said in the prayer, we're going to move towards communion. The Apostle Paul starts out in Ephesians chapter 1, and he says, I, the Apostle Paul, or I, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Now, that is an amazing phrase. That is an amazing sentence for all kinds of reasons, for several reasons. And the first reason is, is just that Paul identifies himself as the author of this letter. And if you were here last week, awesome. If you missed it, please get that message. Because for Paul to write this letter, it is truly an incredible thing. His former name was Saul of Tarsus. And if you know anything about Saul of Tarsus, he was a persecutor of the church of Jesus Christ. I talked about ISIS last week, and we all think of ISIS as some really brutal terroristic group, and they are. But do you realize that Saul of Tarsus was more brutal than ISIS? He rounded up hundreds, if not thousands, of Christians. He had them tried. He had them flogged, so literally strips of skin were hanging off their back. He had them stoned, one of the worst and most painful ways to die. He had them crucified. He was worse than ISIS. He was more barbaric than ISIS. And what absolutely astounds me and should astound you is that God loved Paul. God loved Paul. He pursued Paul on the Damascus Road. He saved Paul, and he made Paul into a new creation. And so often, at least in my position, I hear people say to me, you know, Pastor, you just don't understand. Just this yesterday at the Jesus Soda Survey, Pastor, you don't understand. I am such a sinner. There's no way God could love me. There is no way that God could forgive me for all of the great sins that I have done. And you know what I do? I roll out the Apostle Paul because he's the poster child of the power of God, the grace of God, and the love of God. And I tell him what a vile murderer Saul of Tarsus was and the vile things that he did and how God was able to save him. And I said, if he can save him, he can also save you and he can forgive you. And I wish people would understand that. In fact, God's grace, God's grace His love and his power is so incredible that it could reach deep down into the pit that Saul of Tarsus had dug for himself. And he could lift out Saul of Tarsus. And by the time he got him out, he had become the Apostle Paul. And I want you to know, I want you to be encouraged. You should have hope. If God can do that for someone like Saul of Tarsus, if he can clean him up, if he can save him, if he can make him a new creation, he can do it for you. And he can do it for me. He can change us. Now, as incredible as that all is, as incredible as what he did for the Apostle Paul, what astounds me next, what he did for Paul, is absolutely ridiculous. It's out-of-the-box grace. We are told this. We are told that not only did he save Paul and transform Paul, but he made him an apostle. An apostle is the highest and most powerful office in the church of Jesus Christ. Now, if I had been God, and thank your lucky stars that I'm not God, but if I had been God, I would have said, you know, Paul, I have done an awful lot for you. You deserve the lowest place in hell. But I showed incredible grace, incredible love to you. I've saved you. Don't expect anything more. In fact, I'm going to have you washing toilets in my church for the rest of your life. 
Like I said, thank God. You ought to thank God that I'm not God. But he doesn't do that. He has grace upon grace, and he makes the apostle Paul one of the 12 apostles in his church. Do you realize that there are only 12 apostles? You say, well, how do you know that? I know that from the book of Revelation in chapter 21. If you have your owner's manual, you can turn with me to Revelation chapter 21 and verse 10, and we're told this, or it'll be up on the screen. The apostle John wrote these words, so he took me in the spirit to a great, and by the way, Skip, you can put up that picture. There it is. There you see the new Jerusalem. So this is what, I, I did, I'm going to read this to you now, but I, I want you to see what John was seeing. So he took me in spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city. There it is, New Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and sparked, sparkled like a precious stone, like jasper, as clear as crystal. The city wall was broad and high, with 12 gates guarded by 12 angels. And the names of the 12 tribes of Israel were written on the gates. There were three gates on each side, east, north, south, and west. The wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them, watch this, were written the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now, apostle literally means one that is sent out. In the New Testament, there were two primary meanings of the word apostle. The first one we have just seen, or I refer to, it refers to one of the 12. One of the 12 apostles. I believe that the apostle Paul was the 12th apostle of Jesus Christ. One thing you need to know about an apostle, to be an apostle, Jesus Christ has to literally pick you out. Judas, who will go down as the greatest betrayer, his name will go down in infamy as the great traitor of all of human history. Can you imagine living with that distinction for all of eternity? He falls out, there are only 11 left, and they're on the road to Damascus. This is, this is grace upon grace. This is super grace. God takes Saul of Tarsus, and he points him out, and he says, you will be the 12th apostle. Now, the second meaning of apostle could be in a more generic way. It can just refer to one who is sent, or an ambassador of Jesus Christ. And in that sense, then, we are all an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now when Paul writes that he is an apostle, what he is saying is I am one of the 12. And this is what he's trying to drive at here. He is saying when you read the book of Ephesians, he says don't take it as I wrote it. Take it as if God himself has written these words. Take it as as Jesus Christ himself has written these words to you. What Paul is saying is because I am one of the apostles, I am one of the 12, what I am writing to you in Ephesians is authoritative. It is inspired by the word of God. And therefore, because it is inspired by the word of God, I want you to take this book and I want you to read Ephesians. I want you to study Ephesians, and I want you to obey Ephesians, and you shall live. This is what Paul is saying. This is what he's trying to tell people when he says, I am an apostle of Christ Jesus. All right. 
Now, what Paul says next is extremely instructive for us. Almost kind of amazing. He says this. He says, I, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus because I wanted to. I, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus because I thought it would be kind of fun. No, he doesn't say that. He says, I, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus because it's the will of God. You know, we kind of live in a day and time, if you watch the television or if you're listening to the radio, if you're on the internet, and you have so many people say, I am apostle so-and-so, I am prophet so-and-so, I am bishop so-and-so, I am pastor so-and-so. Here's my question. How do you distinguish the genuine from the pseudo, the true from the false? There is an answer. You know what that answer is? lifestyle. One word, lifestyle. And I'm going to prove it to you this morning because I need you to take this very seriously. Skip, can you put up the picture, the Didache? The Didache is a fascinating book. It actually means the teaching. Now, here's what makes the Didache super fascinating. It was actually written somewhere between 50 and 80 A.D., That means it was written before the vast majority of the New Testament letters. Now, no one knows who the author is, but this much we know about the Didache. It was actually circulated among the early churches. It was actually read by the apostles, and as far as we can tell, the apostles approved of the Didache. In fact, some of the early church fathers who were disciples of the disciples of the Twelve, they testify that that book... And many of them believe inspired by God and should have been in the canon. I'll let you make that decision. Now, for our purposes, the reason why the Didache is so important is because they, in chapter 11, have a chapter on how do you distinguish. Now, listen, how do you distinguish? This is back in the early church. Now, how do you distinguish a true apostle from a false apostle? How do you distinguish a true prophet from a false prophet? How do you distinguish a true man of God versus a false man of God? All right? This is in chapter 11. And remember, here's also what makes the Didache interesting. The Didache was about the early beliefs. So if you want to know what the early church believed, you can get the Didache for free. You can just download it. And it also talks about the early practices. So here's chapter 11, part of chapter 11, about telling a true teacher from a false teacher. Verse 3. Here it is. And concerning apostles and prophets, act thus according to the ordinance of the gospel. Let every apostle and prophet or teacher who comes to you be received as the Lord himself. That's kind of interesting. Now, verse 5. But let him not stay for more than one day or if need be, a second as well. But if he stays three days, he is a false prophet. Verse 6, And when an apostle or a prophet or a teacher goes forth, let him accept nothing but bread till he reach his night's lodging. Now watch this. But if he asks for money, if he asks for money, he is a false prophet. But not everyone who speaks in a spirit is a prophet, verse 8. That is a true spiritual leader. Now listen to this. Except he have the Lord's behavior. Those are my words. 
This is being circulated in the early church. Do you understand what is being said? If someone is a true apostle, if someone is a true prophet, if someone is a true teacher, they will not fleece you. In fact, no, listen to me. They will not ask you for money. That's why you've never had anybody from this pulpit do that. And more than that, if they're really a true man of God, a true teacher, a true prophet, they will live as the Lord Jesus lived. That's what it says. How did the the Lord Jesus live? Did he have a big house, big camels? Gucci robes, Gucci sandals, servants, bodyguards. No, no, I'm challenging you here. So you tell me, you look out in America, how are the American spiritual leaders doing? Now I've told you, and I'm absolutely convinced in my heart of hearts, that we live in the latter days. And the Apostle Paul writes, the Lord Jesus writes that in the latter days you will see false messiahs, you will see false teachers, you will see false prophets. They will proliferate. You know what makes them dangerous? Not that everything they say is wrong. In fact, a lot of times what a false teacher says is true. But 10% of it's false, 20% of it's false, 30% of it's false. And let me tell you, it's the air. That is what will sink you. That is what will put you into bondage. So how do we identify a false teacher? How do you identify a false prophet today? How can you tell? It's very simple. It's extremely simple. By the way they live. Let me tell you something. If someone is truly a prophet, an apostle, a pastor, a bishop, if they really are, they will have no desire for money or the things of this world. You know why? It's not that they couldn't have them. By the way, they could. The point is they don't want it. You know why they don't want it? Because they realize that it'll amount to nothing. Jesus says, lay your your treasures up in heaven. Hey, I got a great retirement coming. Awesome package. No, no. So so don't think I'm, you know, know, being, uh, you know, hurting myself or something in some way. No, I'm not. I'm not saying that. I just recognize this world is the Titanic. It's going down. And guess what, ladies and gentlemen? We got too many people rearranging deck chairs right now. It's going down. Jesus says, why? So, see, if you're really a true leader, you got that. And you feel sorry for the people who are chasing all this stuff. So beware. Because it's going to get really tough. Jesus says in the latter days, it's going to get really tough sometimes to distinguish the true from the false. But guess what? Their lifestyle, the lifestyle always, always gives them away. All right, we've got to run very quickly to the challenge and then to communion. The challenge is this. Paul writes, I, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, I write this letter to the holy people or saints. And remember, in Ephesus isn't there. So Paul is writing this letter to the holy people, to the saints. Are you a holy person? 
Not one. Wow. We got problems. Any saints here? All right. Well, it's no different. The word Paul uses here is hagias. It literally means to be separated from, to consecrate, to dedicate yourself to something. So let me see if I can have this come alive just in a few last minutes. You know, if you go to the average house, the average man has a very holy spot in the house. Did you know that? You see, you probably didn't know that. They, they do. Skip, can you put up the picture? Here's one of the most holy places for a man. The holy toolbox. There are holy hammers, holy screwdrivers, holy pliers. I mean, it's a very, very holy place. In fact, I remember when I was in a house and we had, my, my girls were small, and we just moved in the house, and I had my holy toolbox that looked just kind of like this. And I said, girls, line up. I want you to see my toolbox here. This is very holy. Every instrument in it is holy. Do not touch. Do not desecrate it. Understood. Got it, Dad. Well, I came home one afternoon, and Susan wanted me to put and hammer up a nail, which is very hard for me to do. But I managed, you know, to hammer a nail and put a picture up. So I go to my holy toolbox. I open it up, and, and I can't believe it. My holy hammer is no longer holy. Part of the hammerhead is missing. The first thing I do is I call the girls down. I say, get down here. And they all line up. They're all little. And I said, see my hammer here? It's no longer holy. Deborah, do you know who did this? I don't know, Dad. Christy, she's the middle one. Do you know who did this? I don't know, Dad. Laura was little Laura. And I said, little Laura, do you know who did this? And she thought for a moment. She goes, I don't know. You know, and that's what always mystified me about my house. I thought I only had three children, but I actually had a fourth. And the fourth's name was I don't know. And the problem was I don't know was responsible for everything. But then I held up the hammer with part of the hammer head missing. And I said, I want you to know that this hammer is no longer holy. And you know what it's good for? Nothing. Nothing. It's only good to be thrown away. Listen to me as we move to communion. Paul says that we are to be holy. That we are to be separated. That we are to be saints, consecrated, dedicated. And let me tell you, he means we're to be separate from this world and dedicated and consecrated totally and completely to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if you're not, if you're half a hammerhead, You won't be productive. And Jesus says in John 15, only good to be thrown away. So as we move towards communion, as we move towards communion, this would probably be a great time, if you haven't, to really dedicate and say, I want to be that holy person. I'm going to dedicate myself to you this morning. Before communion, I'm going to dedicate myself to you, Lord Jesus, completely and totally, because I want to be an instrument that can be used by you. Skip, can you play the video?